This sermon was preached by Ed Moore, head pastor of North Shore Baptist Church in Bayside, Queens. Ed is one of the founders of Doctrines of Grace Church Planners. North Shore Baptist Church has planted five churches since 2005. You can find more sermons from this series and many others at www.ns-bc.org. Please feel free to distribute this sermon to friends and family, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way. Please open your Bible to the 65th book of the Bible. And as you do, it's the book of Jude. Please listen as I read the first four verses and we'll go from there. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God, the Father, and kept for or in Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about the common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation. Ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. And at this point, Jude stops and he gives them three illustrations from the Old Testament, which begs the question, why would he give these examples and what are these examples? See if you can follow the argument as I read verses 5 through 7 in these three examples. Now, I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, uh, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. And then he goes on to say that in like manner, these people also rely on their dreams and defile the flesh, reject authority and blaspheme the glorious ones. Here's the question. Why in the world did he include these three illustrations? And I'm going to tell you why I think he did. It may seem strange on the surface, but I think these examples are introduced in order to serve as an encouragement to believers. And here's why. Follow the argument. Jude picks up his quill and he says, I really wanted to write to you on the subject of salvation, but I had to change because there is a crisis which has arisen in the church and the crisis which has arisen is there is apostasy. There are false teachers who have crept in and they have crept in unnoticed. I mean, their coming in is, uh, is really uh, a horrible thing. And so what I'm going to have to do is I'm going to have to change, and I'm going to have to ask you to stand up and to fight for the faith which was once and for all delivered to the saints. And Jude makes it clear that this is going to be a daunting responsibility. Because these people who are undermining the church, both in the way that they live and with what they teach, uh, are doing incredible damage, but they are not going to be easy foes to defeat. For starters, because these enemies are incognito. They have crept in unaware. Uh, We are not exactly sure who they are. In some cases, they don't even know who they are. 
And these people are reprobate. They are rotten to the core. They have been marked out or assigned by God, like Judas, for this task. These are not of the elect. These are people who are designated for condemnation. They are ungodly. And their ungodliness is having an ungodly effect upon the church. First of all, they are taking grace and they are saying that it is grace, but they are twisting the grace of God and making it into a license for sin. There is an antinomian approach to their um, sanctification, doctrine of sanctification, and their Christology is always warped and flawed in that they denied Christ Jesus as their master. And so if you're reading that, you might, be at, you might be saying to yourself as a first century church member, how am I to fight these enemies? I, I, I'm sure that they pack a really good punch. How am I to defend the church against these people? And in that context, Jude stops and pauses and says, wait a minute, I want to remind you of something. You are not fighting this battle on your own. I want you to know this, although you already know it, and I want to give you some stories, although you already know them. In fact, you one time knew them very well. And let me give you these stories and tell you that these stories serve as illustrations to the fact that God has repeatedly demonstrated that he knows how to find and how to severely punish the ungodly. Isn't this the conclusion that we see from 2 Peter chapter 2? You remember when we started this series, I told you that 2 Peter chapter 2 and the book of Jude are mirror chapters. They are very similar. Turn back just a couple of pages to 2 Peter chapter 2. This is Peter's conclusion in writing to his audience that these illustrations were given in order to demonstrate that God knows how to take care of the ungodly. Let's look at verses 4 through 10. 2 Peter 2. For if God did not spare the angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until judgment, and he did, and if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, and he did, and if he turned in turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, um, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly, and indeed he did. And if he rescued righteous Lot, and indeed he did, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for that righteous man lived among them day after day. He was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard, and he did rescue Lot in that way. Then, if he can do all of those things, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and how, here we go, to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the judgment of the great day, especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. So if I'm reading Jude for the first time in the first century and I am assigned the task of fighting for the faith against these ominous foes, I'm going to take great comfort in studying the history of the Old Testament and remembering again and again and again that I am not fighting alone and that ultimately I'm going to be on the winning team because God himself is going to expose and destroy these enemies of the gospel. 
You see, what is amazing here is not the fact that God does this, but what is amazing is is that God is pleased to use human instrumentality to accomplish this protecting and purging and even punishment in his church. He doesn't have to use anyone. He could take care of this church all by himself. He doesn't have to use me. He doesn't have to use you. But he is but he is allowing us to be a part. He's giving us the privilege to be a part of it. I can remember God acting independently on his own in the church that I grew up in. There was a man in the church that was very critical of the ministry that was going on there. He was very critical of the pastor. And this was a pastor that you should not have been critical of. This was a very godly man that loved the congregation and was true to the word of God. But he had been there for about a decade. And this man would always try to work things in the church to try to get the pastor removed. And I remember one Sunday night, he came to my father. And my father was never critical uh, of the pastor. And he came to my father and he talked out of the side of his mouth and he said, you know what we need, Charlie? We need a change around here. We need a change. My dad said, you know, you really shouldn't be talking that way about our pastor. He goes, yeah, well, I understand, but we need a change around here. Well, doggone it if that guy didn't drop dead that week of a heart attack. So they got the change. Um, it, and I am not saying speak, speak, speak against the pastor and you will drop dead of a heart attack. No, no, I'm not saying that at all. It'll, it'll probably be cancer or something. So no, uh, no, I'm not saying that at all. What I'm saying is God does not have to, God does not have to employ us in the defending of the church, but we are privileged to be a part of that. And Jude here beautifully illustrates human responsibility and divine sovereignty that God will rise up and fight these enemies. And at the end of the day, this audience will take comfort in this because they know that ultimately they will be on the winning team. Now, this might not be particularly applicable at this time at North Shore Baptist Church uh, for these reasons, because we are going through a season right now um, where there is great unity and where there is sound doctrine and where there is love and where there is an emphasis upon grace and upon the gospel. But I want to tell you, those of you that do not attend this church, many of my colleagues, many of the men that I went to seminary with, many of my friends around the country right now are standing in a pulpit right now, literally right now, and they are looking in the faces of their enemies. And there is bickering and there is backbiting in the church and there are teachers that have risen up that are teaching false doctrines and it is, it is a fight from one Sunday to the next. And so whether you're in a church where there is peace and unity and good doctrine or whether you are in a church where uh, you are having to, at the moment, earnestly contend for the faith, it is always good to be reminded that you are not fighting alone but that the Lord is fighting with you and at the end of the day, he is going to win the battle. And so he uses these three illustrations, the illustration of the children of Israel, the illustration of the angels who fell, which is what we're going to look at today, and the illustration of Sodom and Gomorrah. What do these illustrations have in common? Well, all of them show that everybody involved there had great privileges. All of them show that everybody involved sinned or fell, and all of them show that there was a severe punishment which was dealt to those who were ungodly. So... That leads us to our text today. I'm going to read it one more time, see where it fits into the book as a whole. I'm going to pray, and then we're going to look at the text. Jude, verse 6. Here's our text. And the angels 
who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he is kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Father in heaven, we pause again and we look to heaven through Jesus Christ. And we beseech heaven, we beseech your throne, and we ask your Lord for grace particular in this portion of the worship service, specifically in the proclamation of the word. Lord, I ask for grace to say the right words. Lord, I ask for grace to say the right words with the right attitude. And Lord, I pray for every person in the room that you would give them a spiritual set of ears whereby they might hear the gospel and whereby they might understand and love the gospel and love Jesus Christ. We pray, Lord, that you would do a regenerating work today. I pray, dear Lord, as this passage is somewhat controversial and somewhat ambiguous, Lord, that you would give us understanding, and Lord, we pray that you would give us proper application. And so, Lord, we love your word, and we acknowledge that we love your word, and we want to learn your word, dear Lord. So help us now as we study and help us as we worship through hearing the word. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Angels. What are angels? Well, angels are messengers, uh, messengers that are sent by their superiors. We look at the angels today. We're looking at them uh, during the fall. These are the fallen angels. We're going to look at angels uh, in general, and then we're going to break them down into holy angels and unholy angels or demons. And We need to know just Jane angels in general, uh, in their essence, um, are spirits. It says in Hebrews 1.7, he makes his angels spirits or winds. Uh, It's the quote from Psalm 104, verse 4. Uh, We know that they are spirits because in Matthew 18, Jesus cast out evil spirits. Um, What do we know about spirits? Well, we know that spirits don't have bodies. Remember, after the resurrection in Luke chapter 24, when Jesus appeared to his disciples, they thought they saw a spirit, it says in verse 37, and then Jesus corrects them and he says, touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones. Remember the demoniac. Demoniac was uh, possessed by 1,000 demons, the demoniac of the Gerardines. Well, Obviously, they were spirits that were in him and not literal bodies. Yet, from time to time, these demons would take on form, and angels, holy angels, would take on a human form. When we look at the actions of angels, it is very clear that they are volitional creatures. They praise God. Um, They defend the faithful. They wrestle. They eat. They are entertained by strangers. They will gather the elect from the four winds of the earth. They will come with Christ in judgment. They excel in strength. There are things that they don't know. They do not know the day of judgment. Some of them have sinned. Some of them abide in truth. Some of them behold the face of God. Some of them are in chains of darkness. There are good angels, and we call them angels. And there are bad angels, and we call them demons. But the most succinct definition in Scripture of their function and their role is spelled out in Hebrews 1.14, which says, Are not they all ministering spirits sent to serve for the sake of those who will inherit eternal salvation? So, why then this morning, Pastor, are you taking the time to tell us about angels, both holy and elect and demons, when the text is only talking about demons or fallen angels? And the answer is because in the text, Jude tells us 
that they did not stay within their own position. And so we need to know what that position was. Therefore, how is it that Scripture says that they are to minister to us? Well, I think we can break it down into three categories, ways that angels minister to us. First of all, scripturally speaking, they minister to us in that they defend us from enemies. In Revelation chapter 12, verse 7, it says that Michael and his angels fought in defense of the church. You remember when Elisha and Gehazi were standing there and Gehazi was fearful and Elisha says, open his eyes, Lord, that he may see that those who are for us are more than those that are against us. The angels were there to fight and defend Elisha. In Psalm 34, verse 7, it says that the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. It was an angel, two angels, that delivered Lot and his family from Sodom. It was an angel, one angel, that struck 185,000 Assyrians when they came to fight against Israel. And you remember when Peter was in prison, it was an angel that broke him out in Acts chapter 12. And so angels are there to defend the people of God. There's a second category of help that we receive from angels in Scripture, and that is the aid of comfort. The women at the grave of Jesus Christ were met by an angel who comforted them. Jesus himself was comforted by an angel in Luke 22, 43. In the Garden of Gethsemane, it says that an angel appeared and strengthened him. Paul, when he was about to be shipwrecked in Acts chapter 27, had an angel appear before him and say, Be of good cheer. And Merry Christmas, it was an angel who told Mary to fear not when announcing the coming of Christ in Luke 1.30. And this is just a brief sample of the ways that angels comfort people, but I think you get the idea. And there's a third way in which angels minister to people, and that is that they are communicators of truth. We're told in the book of Galatians that when the law was given by God to Moses on Mount Sinai, that it was administered through angels. Uh, it was angels that revealed the birth of Christ to the shepherds. It was angels that instructed the apostles concerning an accurate view of the second coming. The men that stood there saying, "Ye men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing into the heavens? This Jesus that was taken up will come again in like manner. It was an angel that told Philip to catch up with the Ethiopian eunuch and to communicate the gospel to him. It was an angel that told Cornelius to pray and to go and get Peter to come to his house and share the gospel with him. And so their message is a message of truth. And it will always be a message of truth because Paul says that if I or an angel from heaven should preach to you any gospel other than the gospel which you have heard, let that person be damned or accursed, and that would include the angels. So what they will communicate is truth. Now, this is just a small sample of what angels do. But please note that every example that I have given you comes from Scripture, and that is intentional, and here's why. Because most sermons that you will hear today on angels uh, will give you a little bit of Scripture, and then you will have several illustrations or stories from people and their modern-day lives of how they have seen angels or how their uncles saw angels or how they went camping and they went out and they looked around and there were angels around their tent or whatever. Let me just say this. I am not here to criticize. I am not calling anyone a liar. 
I am open to the possibility of this because the scripture says that we are to entertain strangers because some have entertained angels unawares. I'm open to the possibility of this, but I am also here today to say that I am very skeptical. And not only am I skeptical, but I don't need to go into these modern day stories when we have so much proof from the Bible of angelic activity. And so according to scripture, generally speaking, what I have illustrated through the defending of people and through comfort and through the message of truth, this is the initial assignment and intent of God for angels as they minister to people. But now by contrast, what about demons? What is their function? Well, Again, this will be an extremely brief sample, but I think you know this. Demons are there to tempt. They are there to lie, uh, to murder, to destroy, to harass, to cast into prison, to hurl fiery darts. Uh, God will turn individuals over to them uh, to bind and to harden and to destroy and to bewitch. Uh, Angels who are demons uh, are enslaving people it says in second timothy 2 that the devil has taken them captive to do his will so there you have the holy angels there you have good angels there you have the background with that in mind what does our verse today say and what does it mean and i just want to say a word about what it does not mean this is not a verse about spiritual warfare and how to fight against demons and how to do exorcisms this is an illustration as i said that God knows how to take care of these himself. But what does it say? It says, And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling. Now some would say that this refers to demons taking on human flesh and reproductive capabilities. Uh, They will put this together from the story of Job and the story of Genesis. You remember in the story of Job when the sons of God came to bring a report to the Lord. And then that phrase, sons of God, obviously is referring to angels. They will link that back to Genesis chapter 6. And in Genesis 6, it says that the sons of God went to the daughters of men. And then it talks about the children that they had and how large these children were and that they were giants. And some have speculated to say, well, what is happening here is the demons have fallen from heaven. They have taken on human flesh with reproductive capabilities. They have gone to women. Uh, they uh, 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 They have mated with these women and they have produced what is a half demonic, half human race. And that that is what has happened there. All right. I understand where they are coming from. Uh, They uh, certainly are there are people who are good and godly uh, who hold that position. However, I do not hold that position. I think that they are wrong. Uh, The reason I think that they are wrong is because the fall of the devil took place before there were the daughters of men. Uh, Satan was working evil in the Garden of Eden before Eve ever had daughters. And the scripture clearly says from Matthew 22:30, For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels in heaven. In other words, angels do not have reproductive capabilities. There's another thought concerning angels that fell from heaven. This is the thought that I'm going to present to you today, and I will say that this is my position. However, however, 
As I've studied it this week, I've come to discover that this is not as clear as I initially thought that it was. I will still hold it as my position. Uh, It is the standard evangelical position, and it says something along these lines. That Satan is Lucifer, and that he led a rebellion in heaven, a coup attempt, if you will, to overthrow God, and he convinced a third of the angels of heaven to join him. God became angry, and he cast them out of heaven. Now... This probably is the case, and I will say right now this is my position, but I'll also say that I could be convinced otherwise. But this is the position, but you cannot get this position from reading just one passage, and you cannot get it from just reading one book of the Bible. You have to do some math. And so let me walk you through where this position comes from. It starts in the book of Isaiah. Chapter 14, how you are fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning, how you are cut down to the ground, uh, you who weaken the nations. For you have said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will also sit on the mount of the congregation of the farthest sides of the north. So what he's what he's saying here, we can continue to read, is that he is going to in a sense, uh, put himself above God or dethrone God. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. Yet you shall be brought down to Sheol. This is a reference, I guess, to his being cast out of heaven and cast into hell uh, to the lowest depths of the pit. Now, that's the information that we have from the Old Testament. There's also a passage in Ezekiel 28, 14 through 17, which is somewhat ambiguous. But generally speaking, this is where the idea of Lucifer comes from. Now, as we move into the New Testament, Jesus makes a very interesting statement about Satan being cast out of heaven in Luke chapter 10, verses 17 and 18. Then the 70 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan falling like lightning from heaven. What this does not say is when he saw Satan falling. Some say it happened then. Some say it happened before uh, the fall in the garden. We're not sure when it happened, but there's this dismissal of Satan uh, out of heaven uh, being cast down. Now, where do his followers come from that we now call demons? Well, we have to get that from the book of Revelation, chapter 9, verse 1. Then the fifth angel sounded, and I saw a star fallen from heaven to the earth. To him was given the key to the bottomless pit. So since the star is referring to the devil, uh, we're going to have to use that to make the connection with his followers, which we would get in Revelation, chapter 12, verses 7 through 9. And war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought with the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought, but they did not prevail, nor was there a place found for them in heaven any longer. So the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was cast to the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. How do we know that it was a third of them? The only place that we can get that is from this same chapter, Back in verse 4, which says, His tail drew a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. So since it says that a star represents the devil and a third of the stars fell to the earth, then we make the conclusion that it was a third of the angels. And the dragon stood before the woman who was ready to give birth and to devour her child as soon as it was born. Now, 
Again, I will say that this currently is my position. And I'll be fine with that. I'll say that I'm fine with that for now. But I'll also say that after studying this week, if you have another position and you would like to convince me uh, of something other than this as far as the timeline and how many of them there were and exactly how it happened, um, I would be open to listen to that. But be that as it may, um, these are some of the particulars. Now, when it happened, how many of it happened, uh, how many it happened to, how it happened, we don't know. But there is an unambiguous statement in Scripture that spells out exactly why it happened. And this is something which I am not open to changing my mind on, and that is this. The reason why the devil and his demons were cast out of heaven was because of pride. That's the one thing I will not back down on because we have a clear statement on that in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 6, speaking of why we should not lay hands quickly on someone to be an elder. It says, He must not be a recent convert or he may become puffed up with conceit or pride and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Clearly, what happened to the devil was a matter of pride. These demons were not content with their position. So whether there was a coup attempt or not, or whether it was something else, uh, what we do know is that they thought more highly of themselves than they should have thought. They left their first estate. They left their position of authority. They left their proper dwelling. Sometime between the end of creation and the fall of man, how do we know it was in that period? Well, we know it was in that period because when God looked at his creation, he looked at everything that he had made and said, it is good. And then... Somehow this serpent comes into the Garden of Eden, and at that point we realize that there is something which is bad. But this is what happened. Now, let me say something about the fall of the demons. It is very different from, than our fall. Uh, our fall is through our federal head, Adam. Through one man, sin entered the world, and death through sin. Their fall uh, was an individual decision fall. Concerning the angels who fell, uh, we are not given enough information here to be explicit and to spell out exactly what happened. And we do not want to speculate. But the bottom line is this. They were not content. They were filled with pride. And they did not want to serve and praise the Lord as was described earlier in the passage through serving him and being sent wherever he would send them to go. They thought that they deserved better. And so they took their position for granted And as a result, they left. There's some controversy here. Were they kicked out or did they volitionally go AWOL? I'm not sure because it says that they left. But whatever the case, they were no longer welcome to stay. And their punishment is also spelled out. Look at the verse. It says, He is kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Notice that their punishment is both present, that is when Jude was written, and their punishment is future, sometime after Jude was written, waiting for the judgment of the great day. Their present punishment is said to be eternal chains. Now, not literal chains. How do we know that it is not literal chains? We know that it is not literal chains because these are spirit beings. These chains represent a limitation or a bondage that they can only go so far. Their 
their present uh, punishment is under gloomy darkness. Again, this is not literal darkness. This is figurative. They are not locked up in a dark room somewhere. Just as Jesus is the light of the world, quite literally, he is not a light. Okay, but it is a figure of speech. In the same way, Satan, as Martin Luther said, is the prince of darkness grim, and everything that goes with spiritual darkness goes along with him and his demons, in that there is no understanding, there is no joy, there is no truth, there is no spiritual vision, there is no righteousness, there is nothing but evil and wickedness and murder and lies and sadness and hopelessness. That is the darkness that is spoken of here. Those are the chains that are spoken of here. And as a side note, I just want to say this. In fact, I even maybe want to correct myself on this. But have you ever heard the phrase that if you fall into sin or if you believe this or if you do something against the kingdom of God, well, Satan is going to be very happy with that. You've heard that. You've maybe even heard me say that, that when something goes bad for the kingdom of God, that Satan is happy. Well, I want to take that statement back. Because he doesn't have the capacity for, say, for, for happiness, and neither do his demons. They are under darkness. You'll hear sometimes people say, well, the demons had a party when Jesus was crucified, but then when he rose from the dead, the party was over. No, they were not having a party. I saw Satan laughing with delight the day the music died. No, Satan does not laugh with delight. And it's going to get worse when he is cast into hell. No, they are under darkness. God did not release them from his presence, which is the fullness of joy, to come either to the earth or to Sheol to have a party for several thousand years and just to delight and to wait for judgment. No, they are under gloomy darkness. It is a constant sad state for them. And Jude says that it's even going to get sadder. They are waiting the judgment of the great day. Remember when Jesus approached the demoniacs and the Gerardines and the voice came out of one of them and said, have you come to torment us before the time? Well, what was he talking about? What he was talking about was Matthew 25, 41, where Jesus says, depart from me, those on the left, you cursed into eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. And so Jude says, you who are being called to contend for the faith, You're going to come up against evil men. You're going to come up against false teachers. Well, please rest assured that God has experience in working against the wicked. And he will fight for you and your battle is not in vain and he will win. That's what the passage means. Now, how can we apply that passage today? Well, we can apply it in many ways. I wish to highlight only four areas. Here's your application. Number one, the more privilege we enjoy, the easier it is to become prideful. The more privilege that we enjoy, the easier it is to become prideful. A Puritan has written, it is difficult to be high and not be high-minded, to be adorned with excellency and not to reflect upon them. Now, this is not to say that poor and weak people can't become conceited because from time to time they do. All it is saying is that the higher one rises, the more they tend to believe their own press clippings and to forget about God and to rely upon themselves. 
You've seen this in your own life, and you've also seen it in the Bible. When Saul was hiding behind the haystack, afraid to come out before he was anointed king, when he was shy and he had no confidence in himself, he was relying upon the Lord. And when he is confronted by Samuel, and Samuel said, you know, before you were somebody, you were small in your own eyes. But what happened to Saul? Well, he became arrogant. And when his kingdom was established, he became complacent and he became prideful and he became jealous and he became careless and he fell. You'd think that David would have learned the lesson because David, when he was running through the wilderness from Saul, as we read the Psalms, we see that he was very close with the Lord and relying upon the Lord greatly. And we have it written. But what happens when David becomes rich, when David becomes powerful, when David becomes successful, when kings go to war, David walks out on the roof of his house and he sees a woman that is not his wife. And what does he do? He's no longer humble, but he takes the woman and he murders her husband. Why? Because the higher we get, the more pride sets in. And it says in Proverbs 16, 18, pride before, goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. You see, the angels had an elevated position far more than you and I could ever imagine. Uh, humanly speaking, it would be very easy to see why they would become conceited, even though we know that their power came from God. They are far more glorious than anyone that you have ever seen or known, and yet they fell. And this also demonstrates that God does not care how high you are or how many privileges you have enjoyed, spiritually speaking. He will not and he cannot tolerate pride, so please guard against it, especially guard against it when things are going well. When you look in the mirror and you like what you see, guard against it. When you look at your checkbook and you see something that you like, guard against it. When you look at your family and someone is complimenting you, what a wonderful job you have done. Guard against the pride. When you accomplish something academically and the diploma is hanging on the wall or the test grade comes back, look at what I have done. Guard against that pride. Yes, the blessings of God are to be enjoyed. But when we take that joy and turn it into pride, it is a hideous sin. And the higher one goes, the easier it is for them to become prideful. Pride goes before a fall. Closely related... The second point of application is this. You know that God hates pride and that he will punish it harshly. Well, here you go. Discontentment is a gross form of pride. Discontentment is a gross form of pride. And having it all does not breed contentment. Humility does. If you said to yourself, if I just had, and then fill in the blank... I would be content. You are lying to yourself. You can get it and you will not be content. Celebrities. And again, I don't know any celebrities other than Harry Dog, the mascot for the University of Georgia. I don't know celebrities. Celebrities, though, for the most part, may be content people. But if they are content, they are doing a very good job of hiding it because from the outside, they appear to be miserable. Having it all does not make you content and discontentment is a horrible form of pride. 
Discontentment says, I deserve better than what I am getting right now. This week, ironically, the California Angels signed a baseball player, Albert Pujols, uh, arguably the best player over the past decade. They signed him, put your seatbelts on, to a contract of $254 million over a 10-year period. On that same day, they signed a pitcher by the name of C.J. Wilson to a contract of only $77 million over five years. And as C.J. Wilson was being interviewed, the press reporter asked this question. I couldn't believe my ears. Do you feel disrespected by Albert's contract? I just signed for $77 million. Do you feel disrespected? Now, I'm not saying anything about the money here. I'm not saying that Albert doesn't deserve it. I'm not saying it was wrong for them to, 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 to pay it. I'm not saying anything about the money. What I am saying is when we as Americans can begin to talk about $77 million in the same sentence with disrespect, something has gone wrong. If there are any trustees in this service, should you wish to disrespect me in that way, I am open to being disrespected. $77 million. Listen closely. The angels had a much higher position than C.J. Wilson will ever have. But in some way, they felt disrespected. They were not content. Do you know what drives Amway? the evil empire of Amway. And I'm glad that this is being recorded and I hope it goes out to everyone across America and they listen to this. I hope any of you who are a part of multi-level marketing schemes will know to stay away from me when it comes to this and how I feel about these things. I am not interested in selling your soap. But do you know what drives Amway? Discontentment. Because the first question that will be asked when they are trying to recruit you is this. Could you use some extra money? And I always answer in this way. You know, that's the one thing I just don't need. I've got so much money right now, I don't know what to do with it. If I had any more money, I don't know what I would do. No, I'm not really interested in money. Is there any other reason you'd like me to sell your soap? Well, the conversation ends right there. What is it driven by? It's driven by the fact that they will assume that people are discontent. And 1 Timothy 6, 6 says that there is great gain in godliness with contentment. These angels were not content. Now, by contrast, look at the Apostle Paul, who was beaten five times with 39 lashes, who was shipwrecked, who spent a night and a day in the deep, a person who at the end of his life only had Luke with him, and all have forsaken me, and Demas has forsaken me, having loved this present world. What does Paul say about his situation? From prison, in Philippians 4.11, he says, I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. You want to call yourself humble? You want to say that you're not prideful? Well, a true test of that would be contentment. The angels who fell, and it cost them dearly, the angels who fell simply were not content. They thought they were going to be able to beat heaven in some way, to beat the presence of God. Oh, were they mistaken. 
The third point of application is this. Sin, and sin in whatever form you would like to put it, rebellion, pride, discontentment, sin, here we go, produces sadness. Sin produces sadness. Uh, They are, as the text says, in chains under gloomy darkness. Chains under gloomy darkness. I don't know how they thought they were going to improve upon heaven, but they gave it a shot. Today, I want you to know that sin makes you sad and sin makes you stupid. Listen to me, you rebels of God who are discontent with His plan for your life. You who are living in sin, you who are seeking pleasure through sin, you who are rejecting Christ, it doesn't work. You can talk to any person in this room and ask them, is sin paying off? Uh, Tell me the things that you've tried, whether it is adultery or or, or whether it is drug abuse or or whether it is some form of thievery or, or whether it is any form of licentiousness. Interview the people around you and ask, well, now how is that working out for you? And the answer that you will get is vanity, vanity, all is vanity. There is no joy to be had there. It is all a hoax. It is a mirage. It is a facade. It is a lie. And the agony these demons must be sensing now, not only because they are in gloomy chains under darkness, but the agony that they must be feeling because of what they lost. Because they have memories. They can remember what it was like to behold the glory of Christ and to be with the other angels and to be given the privilege of, of being a servant of God and knowing the joy that would have been theirs. But now, what are they feeling? Gloomy chains under darkness. I'm reminded of Mike Webster. In case you don't know who Mike Webster is, he was the center for the Super Bowl championship Steelers teams of the 1970s. He has four Super Bowl rings. You know that when Mike Webster died at the age of 50, he died a homeless man. Uh, He died living in his truck, and one of the windows didn't even have a window. It didn't have glass in it. It was just a a plastic bag. Uh, He had lost everything. Now, listen, there are plenty of homeless people today who are miserable. I'm sure that there is not a lot of happiness any way you look at it in being homeless. But how much worse would it be to be homeless when one day prior to that you were holding up the Super Bowl trophy where you have four Super Bowl rings to know what it was like to be affluent and to be at the top and then to slip all the way down to the bottom. How do these angels feel in gloomy chains under darkness knowing that one day they were with the Lord? I want to tell you, if you end up in hell, and some of you will, I don't say that flippantly, I'm your pastor. I love you. You are people. I love you. But some of you will end up in hell. You will remember from your pit of despair the 11th day of December 2011 when you heard in a gospel gathering of happy people 
singing the joyous songs of Zion, the message of Jesus Christ and his forgiveness toward sinners. You heard the message of salvation. If you were going to go to hell, you would probably rather go from a jungle in South America where you never heard the name Jesus and to know the light of the glory of the gospel as you have heard it and seen it in this place. North Shore Baptist Church would be a horrible place to go to hell from because you look around and you see the people that love God and you hear the message of salvation. I guarantee you, in hell, you will remember this sermon. You might forget it tomorrow, but in hell, you will remember this sermon. They are in gloomy chains under darkness. Sadness and suffering. Sin will make you sad and sin will make you stupid. There is nothing there. It is a dead-end street. Which leads me to the last point. And that is, the gospel is of first importance. The gospel is of first importance. Everything in my message today can be, and I have tried to, parallel between us and the angels which fell. They have privilege. They had privilege. We have privilege. They will be sad. We could be sad. They're given an assignment. We are given the assignment to serve. Many things between these angels and us we can relate to. They were not content. We could be discontent. But this one point that I am preaching right now to close the message in is something which they cannot relate to at all. There is no parallel between man and fallen angels. Listen to this. Hebrews chapter 2 verse 16. For surely it is not to angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. In other words, there is no plan of salvation for the fallen angels. Lucifer and his demons, when they fell, were cast out with no attempt on God's part to redeem or to atone or to save. And he was not under no obligation whatsoever to attempt to save them. And he did not do that. And he was perfectly just to do so. God was righteous. He cast them out and provided no plan of salvation. And when Adam fell in the Garden of Eden, God was equally under no obligation whatsoever to make any attempt to save us. But my, oh my, why? That's why we call it amazing grace. Why in the world would God look at man? What is man that thou art mindful of him? We are lower than the angels. Why would he look upon us? And then you hear the words, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. Higher than the angels, Deity, very God of very God, gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him will not perish. They deserve to perish, but will not perish, but have everlasting life. Well, you might get tired of hearing it, but I don't get tired of saying it. When I see one of my sons sitting in the front row, 
It's so good to have this boy home from college. And I look out at the rest of you, and I think to myself, there's not a person in the room, not one person in the room that I love as much as I love this guy. And if it was you or them, him, I would not sacrifice him for any of you. Let me go one step further. I would not sacrifice him for all of you put together. I love my son. How then did God, and you are my friends, how did God for his enemies sacrifice his son? Why would he think of people when he did not think to redeem angels, when he made no attempt to redeem angels? Oh, the love of God. If we would write it, it would drain the oceans dry. God sent his only begotten son for our sins to redeem us. And so listen to me as I close today of the love of God. This holy God, which should damn you throughout eternity, has looked upon you with compassion and he has sent his son to die for sinners like you. And not only does he do that, but he patiently bears with you. And he brings before you today this message that whoever believes in him will not perish. Believes what? Believes that his son was the sacrifice, the atoning sacrifice for your sin, that he died for you and that he rose again. Fallen angels who have known the glories of heaven and the chains of darkness would understand the value of this message. Do you understand it? Let me see if I can put it into perspective for you as we close. <clears throat> Merry Christmas. Luke 2.11. Some shepherds are in the field. They're minding their own business. They're keeping their watch over their flocks by night. It is a night like any other night. What do they receive? They receive an angelic vision, a heavenly host appears before them and there is a message which is communicated to these shepherds luke 2:11 for unto you hang on to that word y o u for unto you you human beings i'm not a human being i'm an angel but unto you is born this day in the city of david a savior i do not have a savior but you as shepherds have a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Do you know who delivered that message? An angel delivered that message. Do you know what kind of knowledge that angel had? Not just where the baby would be and what he would be wrapped in, but that angel had a knowledge and a memory which would go back to the fall of Lucifer in heaven. And some of his former comrades he had seen cast out of heaven. And maybe he himself was perhaps recruited to be a part of that coup attempt. I'm speculating there. Please, I'm not saying that that was the case. But he had a full knowledge that angels have fallen and that there has been no attempt to redeem them. But now he goes and he reports to people like you and me, flesh and blood, sons of Adam, unto you this day is born in the city of David, a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And he was born, 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 born in Bethlehem. And he lived, oh, did he live, no man ever spoke the way that he spoke. He lived and he lived and he lived and he did not sin and he fulfilled the law of God and he died. Oh, he died. He died at the hands of God Almighty and paid for our sins and he paid for them all. And it is said 
It is finished. He paid for those sins and he rose again. He's alive. He's alive forevermore. And he's alive today and he's alive to be your savior. And so like the angelic host, I say to you that there is a savior who is Christ the Lord. And the ultimate expression of discontentment and pride, which will damn you forever to hell with no escape, is to listen to this gospel message and to walk out that door and to say to God Almighty, no thank you. No thank you. The most wicked expression that you are capable of making is to hear this message today and to reject it. That will land you in hell. He has sent his son to die for your sins. Why? Throughout eternity, we will never be able to answer that question, but I am so glad he did because he certainly did not have to praise his holy name. Father in heaven, we are prideful. We are discontent. We are forgetful. Lord, we are wicked. You are good. You are glorious. You are compassionate. And Lord, you are the one that has saved us. So Lord, we thank you for that. And Lord, in your good mercy, I thank you that you did not save the angels for you did what is right. Lord, I just want to pray that we would learn from their example And I want to thank you, Lord, that ultimately you have expressed and will continue to express that you will defend your people and you will defend your church. Oh, Lord, with these truths in mind, help us to stand up and to earnestly contend for the faith. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the sermon from Doctrines of Grace Church Planners. If you would like to learn more about Doctrines of Grace Church Planners, or support our church planning efforts in the New York City area, please visit www.dg-cp.org.